Hello everyone and welcome to Go Forth, a music education talk show. This is Summer. This is Owen. Today we have a coffee talk with Dr. Allison Reynolds, who talks about one music has first heard in some of her research. Stick with us to listen to Emily and Delaney talk about choir during COVID and visuals interpretation, as well as one with Lily and Allie talking about alumni music at interviews and choir and adapting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Go Forth, the music education show based in the Sunderman Conservatory of Music at Gettysburg College. I am Logan, and I am joined today by Dr. Allison Reynolds, Chair of the Music Education Department and Professor of Music Therapy at Temple University. Hello, Dr. Reynolds. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Logan. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you to Dr. Talbot, too. Of course. Now, I was wondering if we could talk specifically about early child music education. Is that something that we'd want to talk about? Oh yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> How much time do we have? How much time? How many have, hours? Let's start right at the beginning in a couple of different ways. When does music learning, music development start? Uh, this is the question I usually start all my presentations with. And I wonder if I could turn it back to you, Dr. Logan, today. What would, you, what would you say? What might be some stereotypical responses? When does music learning start? Well, I just had an interesting class today, um, my instrumental conducting class, where I learned that some people might not even start like band until the sixth grade. So maybe people would say they didn't do music until sixth grade. Maybe they didn't mm. do you know, orchestra until they got into high school. So that might mm. be a typical response. Maybe middle school, yeah. early middle school, high school. What if I ask you, Logan, when, when did you start learning music? Well, probably, I might say, before I did a little bit of research in, in some of your publications, I would say, like, listening to my parents singing along to Bob Dylan uh, in the car. That's probably what I would say. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so after reading my uh, things that I've written or my colleagues and I have written, you adjusted your answer from yeah, well, something different? I've been introduced to the concept of music development uh, happening in the womb. So like even like the rhythm of your, your heart, your, the, the parent's heartbeat, like while you're in the room, uh, womb gives you uh, like a foundation to Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty fascinating. And music psychologists are uh, learning ways from language acquisition researchers to, to study what is, what is music learning or it, what is, can you have music learning in the womb? Um, Sheila Woodward at uh, Eastern University in Washington, um, when she was in South Africa, which is her home country, she did some research with a very, I would say, brave or generous mother in labor, and they were able to insert a microphone, not exactly into the womb, but more precisely into what does it sound like inside the mother for a baby who is, or a fetus who's typically developing from five months on and has a fully formed ear. And so at the time of labor, which this woman was uh, experiencing during this ex extravaganza, they were able to do a few different kinds of recordings, like the sounds of tones from frequency standpoint, you now from really low frequency, really high frequencies. And what does that sound like from inside? And it's all audible. You know, if you can hear it outside the womb, you could hear it inside the womb. What does it sound like when the mother sings? What does it sound like when the father sings? What does it sound like when people are talking? And this is all without any microphones on the womb. So 
that was interesting uh, for everybody to hear. What does it sound like from within? So the, the sound of the heartbeat you're talking about, even the sounds of frequencies of music. Oh, and then there were three different recordings styles that they played. And you could absolutely identify which would be the, if I said one was West African uh, marimba music and one of them was um, classical excerpt and another one's a jazz ex excerpt. And here's what it sounds like from within. You'd be so able to identify not only which was which genre, but with, what are the instruments in that, what are the timbres you're identifying? Which is interesting because then music psychologists are able to find out, well, what kinds of, they're able to use that kind of knowledge to learn what kinds of music learning may be happening in the womb. And then once a child is born, what kind of music learning could be happening and how long does that learning last, et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty fascinating that music learning can begin that early. And it's not, I, I'm quick to say it's not a house, I'm not into hot housing children. In other words, I'm not like, let's build a greenhouse and put the babies in and put a lot of music in and make it really like a fast growth spurt in music. It's not that at all. It's just to say that if the ambient sounds in the, in the environment for the children are so audible early, and there are things about timbres and the language acquisition researchers know that newborns can recognize a mother's voice as opposed to an unfamiliar voice. So it doesn't take much to learn. Nobody's teaching in that. It's, yeah. just, it's just happening. So again, music learning can happen super early or it can happen super late. I'm still learning. When I come to Gettysburg College face-to-face -face and Dr. Talbot's having a gamelan rehearsal, I just, I kind of get nervous because I'm like, I, I know that I know something about those sounds and I've been around the instruments. I've even been to Gettysburg College before. I've done this before. And it's so foreign to me that I am a new music learner when I sit down in that rehearsal. I think it's humbling to be able to be in putting ourselves in situations where we're learning new music, things about music and about ourselves as musical beings. So when does music learning begin? Every day, I hope. Yeah, that, my parents weren't singing along to Balinese gamelan ensembles, <laughs> so I was also a little shocked when I joined that ensemble. That's a pretty, that's a really interesting story. Uh, that that baby might have been the earliest studio musician uh, <laughs> ever. But why is music development important for a young child? We know it starts early, but why is it important? People who study or play in band, choir, and orchestra do better on SATs, or people who are good at music are good at math, and that's fine. That's, isn't that interesting? That's really great. And then, so the, I, my perception is that the profession is trying to say, no, but music, like music is important for music's sake. And then I go to Project Play, and I'm reminded that, man, you know, music is not separate. When I go to Project Play, that school that you didn't get to see any videos from, we don't stop, like the, the popcorn video in the class today, which won't mean anything probably to your podcast people, but it was a music play class where parents pay a bit of tuition to the university community music program to come to the room for music. And as informal or as unstructured as I try to make that space, the point is they come to me and it's organized around conversation starters that I start. That's what they're quote pay, the parents feel like they're paying for, right? But at Project Play, when I go there, I don't interrupt their play to start my play. When I'm invited, and I didn't make this very clear in the presentation, but when I'm invited by the children to be messmates at their table, which isn't all the time, they don't always want me there. Sometimes they're like, go away. <laughs> Who are you? I know you're the music lady, go away. But 
when they do invite me to play and sit down with them at the table, so to speak, they're not at a table literally, but around the table, they're not saying, oh, you're the music person. And so now I'm going to only do music. They may be making art. They may be playing in a sandbox. They may be using building blocks. They may actually be in the music room where the drums and the costumes and the quote stage little platform is. They may have a book. They may be reading. Like it, They do not separate. They had not learned a project play yet that music is relegated to this time frame, in this room, in this building, with this person, for this many minutes doing this thing, this thing, this thing. But when I look at the broad landscape in the United States, that's how music education is. It's in this room on these days of the week with this person for this amount of time. It, it took me a while as a general music teacher to realize that, oh, this group of kindergarten kids doesn't know that this group of kindergarten kids actually knows the same set of songs. And so, of course, when we would have assemblies, it was fun to have a sing-along. It's like, oh, they know the songs too, you know? It's, it's like so segmented. So that's to me, um, like, why is music learning important? I didn't really answer your question yet, but it's not important to teach people to be smarter in another subject. It's not to make them musicians, make them professional musicians. It's not those two kind of avenues. But in a lot of the publications I've written as sole author or co-author and the front matter of music play too, which is supposed to explain to the public, like how has our practice expanded over the years using audiation-based principles, for example. The ability to know ourselves and each other through music, especially with very young children, and to just be gobsmackingly over, overwhelmed over and over and over again by the capacities that children have for expressing themselves, not just, again, through music in a project place sense, because it can be married with so many other kinds of, of learning, which Reggio Emilia approached to education, early childhood education. The Malaguzzi is famous for saying there are a hundred languages of children. And then with Heather Waters and Carrie Renzoni and Emily Jablonski and I, along with the, the people at Project Play, Heather was like, well, you know what? There's a hundred music languages of children. There's lots of ways to be musical. It's not just by being musically literate, reading notation and whatnot, but these hundreds of ways in where music is not divorced from other things and these hundreds of music languages you can really get to know a person. You have a lot to talk about. You have lots of ways of being together if we don't close the doors to what musicking is. So all of this, also the separation, I should say, between, and by the way, just, just for my colleagues in music education and therapy at Temple, that's the, the label of my chairship. So we are two departments or two programs under the same department name. And yet those two disciplines also have existed like this. We share at, at Temple, for example, music history, music theory, but we haven't shared so much with each other because supposedly we have education outcomes or, th or therapy outcomes. And now schools are hiring therapists, music therapists to come into the building. And in one of the publications, Suzanne Burton and I co-authored Suzanne Burton's series, Engaging Musical Practices, and the text I'm referring to is the source book for general music. There's a chapter in there written by a music therapist. It's like, how, how do music educators, general elementary general music educators work with a music therapist? 
So the ideas of how music and social and emotional well-being and working alongside other domains where we all could use help in and working for universal design for learning, right? Music just, just fits all of this. So it's a long-winded answer to a very simple question, but it's, it's a way to know each other, to know ourselves. To know ourselves, indeed. I wanted to address one idea that you, you brought up and then I'll, I'll come back. That was a very good answer with a lot of different things in that. So I want to circle back to a lot of those, those ideas you talked about. But I, I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what uh, being a messmate is. What is being a messmate? Someone who's open-minded, who creates space to learn from others, their perspectives, making time to and making space for people to come together. I think phenomenologically, you'd have to boil down to that essence. I think the the thing about being messmates is that I sort of just wish we could all just already be doing that anyway. And so we could be getting to know each other still as messmates around the table, but keep moving forward so that the conversation is always about deeper and broader issues. So you alluded to a lot of things that you see in early childhood development, musical development. Do you see in youth music education any areas that need improvement? I think we are making improvements as we open up the discussion about what does it mean to be musical and to be a musician and what are ways of engaging in music, musical music making. By seeing improvements there, I would, I would say that we still have a long way to go in the sense of um, what are the systems in place that support broader notions of musicianship. And that means from birth, having lots of people like Patricia Sheehan Campbell, who's at the University of Washington and is a well-published author on young children and musicking. I highly recommend you read everything she ever wrote. Go to any presentation she ever makes. I'll paraphrase it. She said something like, each person plays the role of a music teacher in the lives of the youngest child because a taxpayer, a mother, a teacher, a principal, a politician, like it doesn't matter who you are or what your relationship is to somebody else, you have the opportunity to make a big influence on the, the next person. So everybody should be invested in this idea. So with that kind of notion, ooh, I could even go back to your question about when does music learning begin? And in one of my publications, I'm not the only one who's ever done this, but I quoted the Kodai quote. Do you know this, this quote already? Is it old news? But at one point, Kodai was asked, the question, when does music learning begin? And he said, I used to think that music learning begins nine months before the birth of a child. So with all that other content I was just talking about, that's that kind of thing, like nine months before the child is born, at least the mother carrying the baby can influence the music learning of that child, right? But then so can everybody around now that we know that what can hear from the womb, right? But then Kodai, this is before we heard the sounds from Sheila Woodward's research, right? This was decades ago, Kodai says, but now I think music learning begins nine months before the birth of the child's mother. Oh, that's incredible. The insights, like even before the technology or the research to, to be thinking like it's a cycle and it evolves. So when you ask about what can be improved, I think if we can help people identify the musical parts of themselves, not everybody will be a professional musician, but that's not why we teach, I hope. That's a possible avenue for some of the persons and some of the things we're teaching. So from that, in that standpoint, if we can help people 
with the agency, the fluency, the flexibility of making some kind of music themselves, then maybe they will choose to be classical music subscribers because they, not just because it's the fashionable thing to do, but because they're audiating what's there. Maybe they'll play in a gamelan. Maybe they'll go to a different culture's music. You know, whatever, whatever it is. So I think to me, that's where we still need to work. We just we want to make sure we're giving people access. It's equitable. We're exercising their agent. They're able to exercise their agency over their own music learning processes and leave our classes with an identity of the musician. So, or being musical at least so that they can participate in the world in new and different ways and get to know other people through music. All right. Totally. I know a lot of people that went through high school, my high school, who didn't identify as musicians, even if they're they're in all the all the ensembles and were participating out, out of school. So I think that is something that, that needs to be improved. Uh, I just oh, have yeah. one more. I, I just have one more question for you. Uh, what exciting projects are you working on now or plan to do next? My goal is has been since Music Play Two finished. I keep bringing it up. I don't mean to sound like I'm just plugging this, but Music Play 2 literally just came out September 14th, which happened to be, it would have been Ed Gordon's birthday, but it's pretty big. You can see it was a long-term pro project, which was not our only one in the midst of other things, you know, but we did start it quite a while ago. And one of my goals, once that was finished, was to come and tie up some loose ends. So with colleagues Suzanne Burton and Wendy Valerio, we worked on a survey that we'd like to get out into the world, higher ed, to find out how are institutions of higher learning grappling with early childhood music preparation. I'll just leave a broad question like that. So to develop that survey, we've worked really hard. It's really easy to pop out a survey with a bunch of questions. Like it's really easy to write an essay test with questions one through three or one through five or even one through 20. But to get really a, a meaningful question and to get meaningful responses seems to take a lot of work. So we've been trying to get that shored up and we'd like to get some feedback on it before we send it out nationally. So yeah, surveys are hard. So we're working on that, getting that ready to go. And with the, the group of people earlier today in the class, I was again mentioning Project Play and what we've learned about um, how to be musical in an environment like that and how I didn't say it quite like this during class earlier today, but how can these ideas, ideas and ideas be appealing to especially people in the Reggio Emilia frameworks who already think of children as capable and co-researchers and the environment as third teachers. And if we're preparing the environment as music people, what does that sound like and look like? And um, we just had a whole lot of fun playing there since like 2011 and right now, not going because of COVID, but we have a book project in place for that. And the challenges there are, you know, the pictures and the sounds are worth a thousand words, right? So just trying to develop an attractive book that would be like a possible ebook, you know, so that those images and sounds would be available to the listeners. So, so it, that's also been for all of us on the back burner, we keep thinking, oh, this semester we'll really work on this. And it's not that we're not interested, it's just there are other things, you know, <laughs> so. Yes, COVID. Well, those are all certainly very exciting things. Thank you for thank sharing. You. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the time together. I never thought about when music is first heard and how our first glimpses of music can be heard so early on in life. 
you know, when you listen to music, usually you build an interpretation of it. So here's Emily and Delaney talking about that. Hey everyone, my name is Ali Charney and I am a junior music education major and I'm here with Lily Zoe and I am a sophomore music education major. Um, and today we'll be covering hashtag this is music ed, which covers all the stuff that's been going on on campus and what the students have been up to in the music education world. We're also looking at uh, students off campus, so some of our alums uh, and Lily actually works for the Gettysburg and she writes for them. So Lily, do you want to talk about the recent interview that you conducted with two of our music education alums? Yeah, so one of the articles features two of our recent graduates, Ben Fructal and Brooke Maskin, who are both now teaching. Woo woo, woo woo. <laughs> We're proud of you. We miss you. Yeah, um, and so pretty much covers how the transition has been going from a student that was there when the pandemic started and then graduating and then going into work while the pandemic is still going on and how it has kind of been challenging and also how they've adapted to it. And it's just been really cool to see the ways that they've been able to connect with their students. Yeah, I can't imagine having like a full-time job, especially in the music field or just the teaching field in general. Um, and just doing everything through Zoom and virtually. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, I'm working with the Gettysburg Children's Choir with yeah. Dr. Talbot and Matt Carlson and Austin Nykirk, and we had to move to Zoom. And it's been really not only, like, challenging, but also kind of enlightening, and it's, mm -hmm. it's taught me a lot about technology and just the preparation needed to teach in an, in an online setting. It's just... Right. It's so different and weird but also like we're all adjusting to this new to this new normal mm -hmm. and i think what's really cool about online learning is that you really have to think outside of the box of what's going to catch your students attention like i don't know if you've like done any like presentations and stuff but i know that ben when i was interviewing him was talking about like you know that he really likes using pipe cleaners to make stuff yes. <laughs> so he was using his pipe cleaners to make a little bird and he used that as a prop for an introduction song and then he had all the students he was teaching also make their own videos and then their own interpretation of a little bird and oh, like just that like him so being cute. able to yeah incorporate his own interests and like really making it his own in teaching yeah yeah it is it's hard um especially with music because music is about listening and responding in the moment so it's hard to to like hear your students and assess because you can't hear them and that's like the biggest cha challenge that we've faced in the Gettysburg Children's Choir but we found new ways to adapt and uh, kind of pre-recording videos mm -hmm. and having your students submit their own videos has been a really good way to assess like their progress but yeah it's definitely been different and mm -hmm. something that we've we've had to adjust and adapt to. Yeah. What has been like one of your highlights? Like do you have a specific moment where you were like, oh, this is kind of nice? Um, well, actually this this past week I taught an activity on improvisation. Oh, I remember, yeah. And I I was talking to Dr. Talbot the week before because he kind of wanted me to continue with this improvisation component and I was like, well, how do I teach this over Zoom? Like I can't I can't hear them. 
um, how is that ever going to work? And I'm not going to like ask them to unmute and like start singing for me in front of everyone on, <laughs> on Zoom. So he kind of like helped me through that process and really just reminded me what we did in Social Foundations of Music Ed. And we just adapted it for an online thing. And I actually recorded my own voice singing like the solfege, like harmonies on BandLab, which is an online thing that we've also been using for choir, which I guess we can talk about later. And so I recorded a bunch of examples on, on BandLab and kind of modeled that for the students. And I was and I was like, this is what we would sound like if mm-hmm. we were in class and singing together. Oh, that's so but like, cool. In the meantime, like, they would just be on mute and singing by themselves. Yeah. But I was like, if we were actually doing this class, like, this is what it would sound like. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, like, took a lot of time to, like, think about. But mm-hmm. yeah. it's cool that you were able to, like, incorporate so many different new programs. And I think that's something that a lot of people have been searching for during this time and speaking of like searching for new programs or like finding ways to adapt recently we've been we got a new mic system for like the music ed program and the choral program right Mm -hmm. and we've been using that um you've been using that during your conducting class right um we used it once but i don't think i was at that class we haven't been using it a lot but we have been using choir yes um and Lily's been taking a lot of videos and, and pictures because she runs the, the which Instagram accounts? I, I run the College Choir and the Gettysburg um, Music Ed, Music Ed accounts. accounts, yeah. Yeah, so shout out. <laughs> um, but if you want to see videos or pictures of, of the mic setups that we have um, in the McPherson lot, you can go to those accounts. Mm-hmm. What's been cool about this new mic system is that originally, like, we had to be indoors and like 12 feet apart and I just mm. remember during those first rehearsals no one could hear each other it was really awkward to in sing the chapel, yeah. and like everyone was kind of like conscious about like them singing alone right. whereas with these mic systems they're really like clear first of all you can actually hear what whoever is conducting or directing is saying yeah and like there's just a very like close there's a closeness that comes with being able to hear other people's voices yeah even when they're so far away from you yeah and also like the technique that you use when singing like you don't have to sing as loudly Mm -hmm. um because you just adjust it with a microphone vocal health right vocal health yeah has been a big um topic in choir recently but the mic system is great it's we can still make music and we can still be um, socially distant we still wear a mask when we sing but we just put the mic up to our mouth but it's been really neat yeah I've gotten a lot of good videos that will be up on the Instagram soon yeah. so. um, and one more thing that we're going to be using the mic system with is the open mic night on Saturday Ooh. something I never thought that we were gonna yeah, do yeah music and social event <laughs> Uh, who's running? I think Eric Gabriel is like our social chair. Mm-hmm. So we set up this whole um, activity on Saturday night, um, and the music ads are all going to get together and just have like a fun open mic night. Mm-hmm. Um, we can just sing, perform, do stand up comedy, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you do we whatever want. you want, like hidden talents and stuff. And I think last year I really was like, why don't we have any like coffee houses? I felt like a oh, lot of yeah. the time that people. Like, at coffee houses, people would, like, sit down and be able to hear anyone, like, go up to the mic and, like, sing. And I felt like there wasn't any sort of, like, informal type of 
performance opportunity other than um, now, now here this. this. But even then, I was still like kind of intimidated by right. as a first year, you know. Yeah, exactly. There's still like a lot of talent there. So this like really opens up an opportunity just like for everyone to get to know each other, but also to see like. What we've what, been working on, Yeah, too. that doesn't have to be just repertoire, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the one of the biggest things we've been missing since the pandemic started is these live performances, especially, like, among our peers. We don't have Now Hear This. Now Hear This is, like, our uh, weekly student recital hour, and you can sign up for, like, whenever you, when, whenever you want to go. Um, but we haven't had any of those, mm-hmm. and we haven't had any professional performances to go to, and we're usually required to go to a set amount of them. And I mean, last year we would complain about it, but this year we're just like missing it. Yeah, and I'm glad that there are some things in the conservatory that still are able to give us this kind of sense of normalcy. Yeah. Like voice studio and mm-hmm. like our private lessons are still mostly in person. Right. Yeah, for the people who are on campus, voice studio is in person. Where do you have your voice lessons? In the Majestic? Oh, Dr. Homeler and I have our lessons in room oh. 300-something, okay. and then we go down to the Majestic, which is nice because... To the recital hall, right? Yeah, to the recital hall. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> to the recital hall, yeah. Yeah, to the recital Well, some people have their lessons in the Majestic Theater, which is also really cool, but it's <laughs> That's so story. funny. I'm getting everything mixed up, but yeah. There you go. Yeah, so mine is awesome. We have to switch every, like, half an hour, um, and we still stay distant, and we have to wear a mask when we're singing, but uh, I'm preparing for my assessment, actually, my sophomore assessment, so I'm currently a junior, but last semester, I we got cut off and went home, and I couldn't do my sophomore assessment in person, so um, everyone's got pushed to this year. So I'm still preparing for that, which will most likely be a video. I don't think it'll be an in-person, but that's still, like, an incentive for me to mm-hmm. um, continue practicing my my rep. Um, I know a lot of students are kind of losing motivation because you don't have those performances every week mm-hmm. like we used to, but so that'll keep, me, keep yeah. me going for now. But now we have Nats, like, Nats auditions are oh, yeah, you're right. kind Nats of on too. our radar, um, and so that'll be something that's, like, not even just Gettysburg, but, like, just this entire, like, college area, I guess, where we're able to submit recordings and, like, get feedback from other judges and compete against, like, other students from other schools. Yeah, so I'm applying for, I'm auditioning, or not auditioning, I'm competing in the musical theater category. Are you doing classical? Yeah, I'm doing classical. Oh, okay. really cool. And I've never done it before. Have you done it? No, I haven't. Yeah, so that'll be a really good opportunity. Yeah, so so going back to the more informal um, performance opportunities, uh, open mic night. Open mic night. Uh, I want to know what you're doing for this on Saturday. Oh, okay. So I'm definitely doing at least one thing, but I feel like it'll it'll start becoming more impromptu when we actually go to the event, and then people just go up and do stuff. But Owen and I have been kind of rehearsing um a scene from camp rock okay uh, um fire and rain oh i don't know God. what the actual song is have but your, it's funny because can i be your background dancer you can be my background okay, dancer great. i just think it's funny because both parts require you to like belt oh <laughs> and owen and i are not very big belters <laughs> so oh okay. uh, not to mention the fact that 
Owen is a bass, and Joe Jonas is definitely <laughs> not a bass. Just tell him to sing everything two octaves down. We'll yeah. Be, he'll Maybe he'll fine. sing my part, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, um, are you planning on doing anything, Allie? <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't thought much about it with homework and everything, but, you know, I might pull out a country song or two. <laughs> Amazing. Um, big country fan right here. Really? Yeah. I think I only know, like, Chicken Fried. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. That's a classic. You have to introduce me. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. But one thing that I feel like has been missing is, like, kind of, like, the dancing aspect of music ed. At least for me. I know you have conducting. Yeah. And, like, during boot camp, you've been able to do, like, dancing. Movement activities. Yeah. yeah. And, like, since I don't have marching band, and I know that you don't have, like, <laughs> Into the Woods, which I also want to audition oh, for this yes. year, and kind of like singing um, in a more informal way because of the pandemic. Have you found any ways to move? Like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, like movement stuff. Well, we've been doing a lot of uh, movement and conducting, obviously, especially with Dr. Talbots. We did some dancing in his class. Uh, movement is a really important part of of music and of conducting in general but also lily we've been recording some tiktoks <laughs> and this is a great way to uh take a study break and move your body around a little mm -hmm. and engage with uh popular music and yeah. popular dance i think that tiktok sometimes gets a bad rep because it's like a social media yeah. app i've seen teachers use tiktok to be able to communicate with their students and just to get to know them better because that's what relates to them the most. Like this is, TikTok is the social media for this generation. Exactly. And there's so many like different arrangements on TikTok of like popular music and they're all like s tiny small sections of the music. So like you can do a lot with them and um, yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is that content from social media can be used in the classroom and can yeah. be used to connect with your students. Yeah, exactly. So I think we are at the end of our time, but it's been such a pleasure. I'm Allie. And I'm Lily. Go, Go forth and change the world. You know, I always enjoy the Gettysburg Choir performances, and I especially miss some of our alumni that have moved on and are in their first or second year of teaching. So do I. And speaking about alumni, next up we have Allie and Lily talking about our Music Ed alumni and how social media is intertwined with music education. Hi, my name is Emily Femino. And I'm Delaney Mavika. And this is our pedagogical section of Go Forth. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about having ensembles in this COVID world, you know, safely yeah. six feet distanced if you are in orchestra or I believe band and then 12 feet apart for choirs. And since we are both in choir, we wanted to talk about how we've been doing choir in this way. Mm -hmm. What Dr. Natter originally had us do was we would go in person in only very small groups and we'd go in large areas like the chapel or the recital hall. So everyone got a chance to sing and learn their music. And usually we would switch off between the recital hall and the chapel, so we would do half an hour in the recital hall with just about four to eight of us all spaced out between the chairs, and then we would walk over to the chapel 
which we would do the exact same thing, and they would blow little fans to air out the area after we were done. Mm -hmm. So it is very important to note that you should have a proper air circulating system, whether it be large fans, or I know they have different machines that its specific purpose is to circulate air. We also had the chapel basement and then the chapel itself, so we would alternate between there every half hour to make sure we are not sitting in the same area for too long that has those air particles that could possibly be carrying COVID. Yeah, and it was really great because we really got to know the people on our parts and it was really great for instruction because Dr. Natter really got to work with us individually to make sure that we were solid on our parts too. And a lot of us were freshmen, so I think, don't get me wrong, the Zoom is great, but it's really nice to be able to interact with other people and sing in person and really get that personalized help and instruction that you can't really get on Zoom. And then um, once it got a little warmer out, or it was warm, but we had the great idea, Dr. Natter and Dr. Talbot, to get a microphone set and some speakers. Yay. So we set this up in McPherson lot, and this meant for actually our Adeamus that all of us could come and sing, which was really cool it because so we'd only awesome. been singing in small groups, as Delaney said, of four or eight. So the reason we were able to do this was it was because outside, so we didn't need to change our spots every 30 minutes or have that fan going to, you know, for circulation. Usually it's very windy here. And yes. there's nuts that fall <laughs> from the trees and hit yes. us on our heads. <laughs> that was the only downside of being outside was mm -hmm. you had to constantly watch out for acorns falling down. Um, there were definitely one or two instances where people did get hit on the head, but thankfully no injuries. But it was really cool because we all had microphones, so even though we were still uh, distanced, we could hear each other through the speakers. And that was just really awesome to hear harmonies and other people singing. Yeah, and they also were able to get uh, Tim Foster out there to be our pianist, our accompanist, and he was amazing. And it was just so cool to be able to sing our songs through with the accompaniment. It just felt like we were at an actual rehearsal or as normal as it could have gotten during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Natter also did a really great job of including our online people as well, people who obviously could not go to rehearsal in person, which is really awesome. And then instead of recording, you know, the people in person and then the people online, he had us all actually use BandLab to record our parts individually, which he could then combine all together to make it sound like one big choir. So no one was really left out. Yeah, and it's been, it's been a really great learning process, I'd say, on the more pedagogical side of this discussion. Because it really teaches us as future educators how to cope when there's a pandemic. We don't know if mm -hmm. there might be another pandemic, and it's just there's more tools that are being accessible to us, like BandLab and Soundtrap, and I guess, what was the other Even one? Even GarageBand. GarageBand. He uses Reaper. Dr. Nider uses Reaper. Mm -hmm. And it's just we know so many of these tools through him showing us how to do it. And then some of our assignments are that we have to record our part and edit it so that it sounds good and add in our own little dynamics and stuff and then send it in to Dr. Natter to see how he puts it all together. So that's just, it's a really great learning point, I'd say, for all of us, especially even the kids who aren't going into music education or music processing or whatever. I think anyone doing music, it's a very good skill to learn mm -hmm. to be able to almost produce and edit your own music. Definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. I think as music educators, it is important for us to be introduced to different um, forums for producing music. I think 
for almost all of us, all we've ever known is you go into choir class, you sing, and then you have a concert, which there's nothing wrong with, but it's always really cool to kind of change that status quo and consider other possible options for creating music. Listen, does everyone prefer a live concert? Yes, of course, but <laughs> it is really cool to kind of bring people together from, in our context, from, you know, around the country, but, you know, I think Eric Whitaker did like a global yeah. choir, which is Whitaker so choir. cool, yeah. So I think that's also, that's really important because everyone has an equal part in this choir. It doesn't matter if, you know, you are on campus or you're not on campus. Everyone gets involved, which is really cool because I'm sure the people who had to get sent home or even the commuters who are unfortunately not allowed on campus have just the same amount of opportunities as us on campus do. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah, definitely. And I also think that this kind of virtual choir aspect really just brings in, like you said earlier, people from all over the world. Because once we post this stuff, like people everywhere can see what they were doing. Like, hey, what's Gettysburg College doing? Like, what kind of songs are they doing? How are they recording it? What are their little videos gonna look like? And that kind of segues into the next thing we wanna talk about with We've been doing some rehearsals on Zoom now, and I think that's really cool because now that we are more comfortable with the structure of choir at Gettysburg in general, we are more confident in our ability to learn music. So what Dr. Natter has done as it's gotten colder is teach us songs over Zoom so we don't necessarily have to <laughs> sing out and we can just sing to ourselves, which I think is good because I bet a lot of students are not confident in their voice so having to sing by themselves especially over zoom may be very stressful so it's it's kind of nice to be able to mute yourself and just sing to yourself which is really good but he still is giving you the opportunity to ask questions whether it be in the chat or just unmuting yourself and asking it and he can see everyone and it can help everyone just the same as it were an in-person rehearsal which is really nice. So we actually learned um, yesterday in Adeyamus, we learned, what was it? Deck, Deck the, the Halls. Hall. Yeah. Deck the Hall, Singular not halls. halls, which I learned yesterday. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we literally, what, in little under an hour, we learned the entire thing. Yeah, and I personally, I'm all ready to record my first, my first round. Yeah, me too. It's very mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. And another thing that I really, really like about this, this new Zoom platform rehearsal that we've been using is that Dr. Natter will share his screen and he'll show us the sheet music that he is reading off of and he'll show us all of his markings on the sheet music. And so then I feel like some people might be a little confused about how to mark their music because they might have came from a background where they didn't mark their music or they weren't made to mark their music or it just wasn't really a thing in their choir. So I think it's really cool to see how he marks his music so then we can mark our music the same way And it really is just a better articulation of what he wants as a director We see exactly what his goals are which is really cool because I'm there are totally times no matter who the person is they're trying to communicate to you what they want and you might not, under, might not understand that, so the fact that we are literally seeing exactly what he has marked in his score is really helpful. And another thing, he's also showed us how he's editing all of our parts from our recordings together, which is something we don't really get to see a whole lot. So it's really cool yeah. to see him put it up on the screen and show us just exactly how he's lining up every single voice, maybe uh, putting an equalizer on it. It's really interesting, and I'm sure none of us have really thought about that, just putting a bunch of songs, you know, 
parts together and making it sound like an actual choir and not a total train wreck. Because I think a lot of us just kind of assumed, oh, you put it into a software and then it all lines up. Right. But it's difficult because even if you're off by like a small millisecond, it sounds, totally it. it sounds like a train wreck. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool to see him work through that and show us how to fix that ourselves too. So he's not doing as much work and we are learning more technology-based music activities. Yeah. It's also really cool to for him to show us the very beginning part of how all of the recordings sound together and it sounds okay but it's not the best but then after he even makes like a few small edits in like maybe one voice part you can really just hear the difference and you can hear how much better it already sounds. Mm -hmm. Something that's also really fun on the Zoom forum is that when we are making videos for our songs because we recorded our audio separately, we can do really fun stuff on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes he wants us to do specific movements and definitely when we tried to do some of that stuff at McPherson Lot together, I think a few of us were definitely a little reserved and scared to do some dance moves in person. Yeah. And you could tell definitely on Zoom there were a lot more people willing to throw their hands up or shake their head or move from side to side, which was really cool. So it was cool that we get that Zoom aspect, but he also let us record just ourselves doing it. And then he also had us do some shots while we were all together outside at McPherson Lot. Yeah, and he also had us turn in some photos, some images for one of our songs. And he was just basically like, choose two to three images that really, really strike you as meaningful. He had us listen to the poem and just read through it and just see what it meant to us. And so I turned in some images. I think I turned in like a field of daisies and like a tree at sunset. And it felt really meaningful, and I think that video is going to be great. Yeah, I think it's really cool because a lot of the choir videos that I've seen just on YouTube are just everyone in little cubes, and that's, that's the video. So it's really cool that he's having us bring in our own personal interpretation of the song and submit that so all of our interpretations will be featured in this video together. And hey, they might all be drastic. I sent in a picture of like the ocean at sunset so obviously your interpretation is much different from mine yeah. and I think that's really cool that we will have all these different interpretations in our video so I think as teachers it would be very beneficial for us in the future to ask the students their artistic interpretation of a song because I think you can make an emotional connection to it and that <laughs> would help them play it better more than just oh, you're playing the notes correctly, and you're in tune, but, you know, if you're playing a piece just technically correct, you're not getting that emotional aspect of it as well. So I think if you ask the students to draw upon their connection and their own interpretation of the song, you can really add a whole different layer to a performance. I think the teacher can learn a lot from the student in just their interpretations of the song Definitely. and how they want to articulate what their feelings about maybe the poems or the lyrics are. It might get the teacher to consider something they, haven't, they hadn't thought of before, but it might add something new to the piece next time they conduct it. And I think it's also really cool that he's having us record and edit our own videos because it gives the students agency 
in this creation as a choir and I think that's really awesome for teachers to get their students involved in the creative process and not just performing and I think that's something all of us as future music educators can do is one get the students more involved and two get them excited to be involved and active in that involvement especially during the pandemic because I know personally when things shifted over I wasn't too enthusiastic about online choir totally I just I wanted to sit in my room and not do online choir but now it's just like I'm so excited about online choir because mm -hmm. I've just been so thirsty for choir yeah exactly I feel like in my high school choir you know I sat through the lesson you know for a song that I knew already and then I just did one recording. I was like, oh, that's fine. Okay, send it in. Someone else is going to edit it and put it all together. So I'm much more in excited now to be doing this because right. we have an active part in this. And it's much more than just, oh, you sing it once, you send in a video. We are doing so much more and are so much more involved, which I think is getting a lot of people more excited than what it was like in March or April. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that is everything for this segment. Thank yeah. you so much for listening. Again, this is Emily Femino And Delaney Mavika. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Go Forth, a music education talk show. This was Summer. And this is Owen. We hope to see you next week. And until then, go, go forth, forth and, and change, change the, the world. world. This talk show has been brought to you by our interviewer, Logan Shippey, our guest star, Allison Reynolds, Emily Femino. Delaney Mivica, Ali Charney, and Lily Zoe. The audio has been edited by Sam Burr, Summer Burton, and Owen McGowan. Our quality controllers are Amanda Harold and Zane Kazmarski. A big thanks goes out to our coordinators, Dr. Talbot and Dr. Russell McCutcheon.